Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at um, verses 9 through 21. Let's hear God's holy word. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that he may be clearly seen, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your word, for we know that it is life, it is light, it is salvation. We know that because it is the word of Jesus Christ. It is the word of God. And therefore, Father, we pray that your spirit, which inspired your word, would work through it now as well, in our hearts and minds, to apply it, that we might be built up in our faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ, to whom we pray would be all the glory. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. From the time of the early church, all the way up until the beginning of the 20th century, until the early 1900s, maybe the late 1800s, If this passage had been read in any context, Roman Catholic or Protestant, there would have been universal agreement that every word in it from verse 9, where we find uh, Jesus beginning to speak, Nicodemus asked the question, and then in verse uh, 10, we find, we find this, we begin to find this answer from Jesus. Jesus answered him. So everything from the words, are you the teacher of Israel, all the way through the last words of carried out in God at the end of verse 21, there would have been universal agreement that Jesus is speaking every single one of those words. Every single, that it was a quote. 
But then what happened at the end of the 1800s, the beginning of the 1900s, somebody came along, respectful of the Bible, but he suggested that verses 16 through 21 were actually a reflection by the Apostle John at a later time. So at the time when the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to write down this gospel, that this is sort of a commentary, or these are apostolic, Holy Spirit-inspired, apostolic words added on to this text. <clears throat> so there would have been this, this agreement from the early church fathers through the Reformation right up until that time. Now, I want you to understand clearly, there are still people who, suggest, who go one way or the other. And I want to tell you that some of those who suggest that these, verse, that these verses are verses from John, that you will find in conservative commentaries, are in no way denying either the inspiration or the authority of the word. They are only suggesting that these words come from post-resurrection revelation rather than Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. However, while it may not make a difference in terms of the authority of the words, and I want you to understand something. If you have a red-letter edition right now, it's going to be red-letter all the way through verse 21. In fact, if you look at the quote marks, you're going to see the quote marks go all the way through verse 21. But it's this thing, this idea that we've gotten that maybe, because, gee, you see, the prob, our problem is, I, I'm interrupting myself, I know, but our problem is, is that it's difficult when people start talking about themselves in the third person, as Jesus frequently did, every time he refers to the Son of Man, he's speaking in the third person. When people start talking about themselves in the third person, it's hard for us sometimes, our brains, to figure out, are they talking about themselves or are they talking about somebody else? So it's only natural, if we don't have a red-letter edition, or we don't see those quote marks, for us to think, that starting with verse 16, <coughs> that it's somebody else, that it's got to be the Apostle John speaking here. What I want you to understand is, is that while it doesn't make a difference, perhaps, in terms of the authority of those words or their inspiration, it does make a significant difference in terms of what we can see Jesus clearly understood about himself and why he was here. And what he wanted his disciples to understand concerning what he understood about himself and why he was here. Therefore, as we come to John chapter 3, verses 9 through 21, I would like us to see that all of the words in verses 10 through 21 were spoken by Jesus in his final address on this occasion to Nicodemus. They are Jesus' words to Nicodemus. In these verses, I would like us to see salvation and love. Salvation and love. These verses are found within the context of the interaction between Jesus and the religious leader Nicodemus. And while Nicodemus does clearly hear the gospel in John chapter 3, he is not a believer in John chapter 3. He is not, this is not, I know we've come to think that this is his conversion story. He is not converted here. He is an unbeliever here. It would seem that he does become a believer later because he puts, his, he puts his position and everything on the line 
For Jesus, when he joins Joseph of Arimathea in defiling himself, ceremonially defiling himself before the Passover in order to take care of Jesus' body after Jesus' death on the cross. So it would seem that he's clearly taken a stand for Jesus at that point. But right here, he is not a believer. And we know that in two different, clearly two different ways. One of them is in the way he speaks about Jesus. He speaks to Jesus. So let's look at that first. If we were to turn to John chapter 1, starting with verse 19 through 51, we would find what happens that John is recording something that's not in the other Gospels. If you were to turn to Matthew or to Mark, you would find that they go straight from the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, straight to Jesus teaching in Galilee. Okay? So they go right up, because both Matthew and Mark go straight from the temptation in the wilderness to John having been arrested. So John the Baptist is completely out of the picture after the baptism of Jesus. Luke goes straight from the baptism of Jesus to Jesus' teaching in a synagogue up in Galilee. John fills us in with what happened in between. He doesn't tell us about Jesus' baptism. He doesn't tell us about the, he doesn't tell us about the temptation in the wilderness. Instead, the Gospel of John picks up right after the temptations and Jesus coming out of the wilderness. The first place Jesus goes after he comes out of the wilderness is back to the Jordan where John is baptizing. And that's where the Gospel of John tells us about. John goes on to tell us about Jesus' first disciples. We think from reading the other Gospels that he came across these first disciples up in Galilee. No. Gospel of John tells us These guys believed in him way back at the Jordan River after Jesus came out of the wilderness. It's going to be astounding in a couple minutes what you, when I bring this to your account to see what these guys believed before the first miracle. Then John goes on to tell us about how Jesus goes up and visits his family for a short time. And then he goes to the wedding at Cana. And then he goes up to Jerusalem where he cleanses the temple. We don't read about any of those things in the other Gospels. None of them are there. And then there's this confrontation while he's in Jerusalem with Nicodemus, this discussion that they have. And then from there, Jesus goes to the Jordan, back where John the Baptist is at, and we find that Jesus' disciples are baptizing. And then he goes up to Galilee where the stories are joined in with what we're reading in the other three Gospels. So the Gospel of John is filling in all this stuff that happens, obviously, over a long period of time, between the time of Jesus coming out of the wilderness and the beginning of his ministry up in Galilee. So, first of all, it's just because that's the way the Holy Spirit inspired these things. But if we were to go back to John chapter 1, we would see something that is so amazing, so astounding, that it's going to take your heads a little while to think about it, to be quite frank. Because what happens at the Jordan River, as Jesus comes out of the temptation, he comes back to the Jordan. First, John is being confronted by those who are questioning his authority. And you can see that, you know, some of us, when we're trying to explain something to somebody that is not getting what we're saying, we get longer in our answers, 
John gets shorter in his answers. He starts out with a long explanation, and because they keep pressing it, he gets shorter and shorter, because he's not putting up with this. He understands it's coming out of unbelief. There's no sense in even talking to these people. And then on the next day, he sees Jesus, and he says something about Jesus that is not to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. It comes 100% purely from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Sin, singular. This isn't anywhere. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Pure Holy Spirit. John the prophet is speaking. And then the next day, he sees Jesus again. Two of his disciples are standing by him. And he says, behold the Lamb of God. And then they begin to follow Jesus. Okay? And then Jesus picks up a couple more disciples after that. Now, it's hard to read this. First of all, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the, the sin of the world. John acknowledges in those verses that he only recognizes who Jesus is because God told him, him upon whom you see the Holy Spirit descend, that is the one. Now, of course, that's when did John see that? John saw that back when he baptized Jesus, something that the apostle John doesn't even record. But here he's reflecting on it. So how does... John the Baptist recognized who Jesus is. It isn't because he's his cousin or however they're related. That's not how it happened. It's not because he saw some wonderful thing in him. Nope. It's not because he heard Jesus speak. It is purely because of a revelation from God that told him, the one upon whom you see the Spirit descend, that is the one. That is how he knows. He knows because of a revelation from God who Jesus is. That's important to the Gospel of John. Very important. It's important to what happens. How did the two disciples who are with Jesus on the third day of John chapter 1, how did they know who Jesus is? It's because John says, Behold the Lamb of God. The Holy Spirit works in their heart based on the word that they are hearing from the prophet. They know a lot of Old Testament but they go to begin following Jesus. And do you know that between verses 19 and verse 51, in addition to being called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, do you know what those first disciples confess concerning Jesus? They call him the Son of God twice. They call him, Nathanael calls him the, the King of Israel, meaning by that the eternal King of Israel that Nathan the prophet told David would sit on his throne forever. Does a human ever sit on a throne forever? No. So he's calling him the eternal king of Israel. In other words, he recognizes that he is God seated on the throne over his people. So he's called the son of God. He's called the king of Israel, which is a divine thing. And he is called Why would I blank? King of God, Messiah, and Son son of God, King of Israel, and he's called the Christ, the, the Savior. Okay? So he's called those three things. Those disciples are confessing those things about Jesus before the wedding at Cana. 
before the wedding at Cana, before the first miracle, only based on, first of all, John the Baptist's confession concerning Jesus, and based on the fact that Jesus tells Nathanael, I saw you when you were still sitting under the fig tree before Philip called you. So based on these things, these guys' knowledge, you remember what, what, what Philip says? He says, we've found the one we're looking for. In other words, these were guys who had been studying the word. They knew what the word said about the promised Messiah, the promised son of God, the promised king of Israel. They knew what the Bible said about him. And then they believed that this is him. Is it because he had done some miracle? No, John makes it clear. The miracle is going to be in John chapter 2. What is it based on then? It's based on the spirit combining the word of God with faith in their hearts. That's why they believe. That's why they believe. And then that brings us to John chapter 2. And what happens in John chapter 2 is we have the miracle of Cana. Uh, By the way, what did Jesus say concerning those who behold? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And he's referring to... Yes, he's referring to Jacob, but what he's, he's talking about, he's saying that if you were to turn back to that Genesis passage, Jacob there, when he calls it Bethel, he says, this is the gate of heaven. This is Bethel, the house of God. Jesus is saying, I am the gate of heaven. I am the house of God. Amen. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, truly, truly, you will see that. In other words, they're going to see God's glory. They're going to see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. That's in that first truly, truly. You will see the heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's the first truly, truly. And now, while we may say that John and the first disciples had the kind of faith that trusted in Jesus... We're going to find out that there's another group. Yes, there's opposition. Jesus' authority gets challenged. Just as John's authority had been challenged when he was baptizing, Jesus' authority gets challenged when he cleanses the temple. But there's another group. As we start to work through chapter 2 and we come to the end of chapter 2, we find that we're told that there is a group of people who believe in Jesus. But it's a different kind of belief. They believe that Jesus is sent from God, but they don't believe that Jesus is God. Nicodemus is in this group. We know this in two different ways. We know it from the way that verse 1 in chapter 3 is linked to verse 24. I want you to turn back in your Bibles, turn to the very end of John chapter 2, and I want you to notice what goes on here. I want you to forget about that little heading that is in your Bible. That is between verses chapter 2 and chapter 3. You see this word, you must be born again. I want you to forget about that. those words because those italicized words are not in the Greek. They are not inspired by God. Those chapter numbers are not inspired by God. Those verse numbers are not inspired by God. I want you to know that. So if you were reading this in your Greek Bibles, first of all, they never had spaces in between words, so it's really hard to read. Uh, you know, paper was expensive, uh, the papyri was expensive, so they're cramming everything together. But I want you to look at the word, the way that word, the, the word man is used. Look at verse 25, uh, start in 24. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Now, first of all, you've got to ask yourself, what kind of a person is it that Jesus doesn't 
trust, that he doesn't entrust himself to, that he doesn't give himself to. He certainly had given himself to these other disciples earlier in chapter 1. What does this mean? He doesn't trust them. He doesn't entrust himself to them. Then it goes on. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So forget about the breaks in chapter. Forget about the heading. Forget about the verse numbers. All these Greek words flow together. And what we are to learn from it is that Nicodemus is an example, verse 1 of chapter 3, of the kind of man that's described in verse 25 of chapter 2. Jesus knows, by the way, that other word man that's there again, that, that um, when the, the word man in verse 2, that's not in the Greek. So I'm not counting that one. But at any rate, I just want you to see this, just this, this flow. So he's talking, the, the gospel writer, Jesus didn't need to, um, needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is the kind of man, is an example of the kind of man being described in verse 25. So that's the first way that we are hinted, that is hinted at, that Nicodemus is clearly not a disciple. Clearly not of the same kind of believer as described of the disciples at the end of chapter 1. But there's a clear second way as well. Do you remember what I said about the confessions of the disciples and John the Baptist? Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Son of God. King of Israel. Messiah. That's what they said. What does Nicodemus say? Rabbi. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi. Teacher. The other guys are recognizing that Jesus is God. That he's in a whole different category than they, than them altogether. And you know what Nicodemus is doing? He probably thought that he was complimenting Jesus. Because he was a rabbi, and he was recognizing Jesus as a fellow rabbi. This Galilean. This untrained Galilean. He probably thought that he was actually complimenting by Jesus. Complimenting Jesus by recognizing that he was in the same category as himself. But Jesus is going to use all those words. Nicodemus calls him a rabbi, namely a teacher, and Jesus in the passage we're about to look at is going to use that and turn those words on their head. He also says, we know that you are a teacher from God. And Jesus is going to take that we and that you, and he is, one, again, in the verses we're about to look at, he's going to turn them on their head. Nicodemus does not have the same faith as the disciples. Jesus tells this second group in his second truly, truly of verse 3, chapter 3, that unless they are born again, they will not see the kingdom of God. Do you see the contrast? The first group is going to see the heavens opened. The second group will not see the kingdom of God. 
Huge contrast. Now, Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. He thinks he's referring to physical born again, as we see in verse 4. But Jesus' response in verses 5 through 8 make it clear that physical rebirth is not what he is referring to. In his third truly, truly, Jesus says that unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he will not enter the kingdom of God. Now, while God's words through the prophets spoke clearly of these things, so clearly that Nicodemus ought to have known what Jesus was talking about, he did not understand. Therefore, here Jesus declares clearly what God has done for man's salvation. Salvation, verses 9 through 15. Once again, Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. The law clearly pointed to our need to be washed clean of sin. Do you remember what Israel had to do before they heard God's voice in Exodus chapter 20? They had to wash their clothes. Okay, they had to bathe. What was in, what was, what sat in front of the tabernacle and then the temple before the priest could go in? A bronze laver so that they could wash. What did someone who was ceremonially unclean have to do on the last night of their uncleanness before they could re-enter the worshiping people of God? They had to bathe. What did God promise in Ezekiel chapter 36 that He was going to do for His people? That He was going to sprinkle clean water on them and remove their sins. The law and the prophets could not have been clearer about the need for cleansing from sin. But Nicodemus doesn't get it. He doesn't know what Jesus is talking about by being born of water. And as for being born of the Spirit, what did God promise? He told Israel that they had to. First, he tells them in the law that they need to circumcise their own hearts. But then what does he say in Deuteronomy? He says, I will circumcise your hearts for you. And what does he tell them in Jeremiah and Ezekiel? I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And what does he say in that same chapter of Ezekiel 36 that I referred to earlier? I will pour out my spirit on you. The law and the prophets were abundantly clear about the need for the cleansing of sin and God to give His Spirit to His people. But although the law pointed to the need for a new life from God and although God promised that He would give them a new life by giving them a new heart and giving them His Spirit, Nicodemus is unable to grasp what Jesus is talking about when he says that we must be born of water and the Spirit. It's beyond his understanding not because of some lack of clarity in God's word or because Jesus is being obscure. Nicodemus does not understand because he hasn't been born again. Without the work of the Spirit of God in him, he cannot understand. Therefore, he can rise no higher than understanding Jesus' words in a very earthly way. When Nicodemus first spoke, To Jesus, he called Jesus rabbi, teacher. Now Jesus asks Nicodemus, how can you be a teacher of Israel and not understand these things? 
How can he have the responsibility of teaching others when he doesn't understand? In his third truly, truly to Nicodemus, Jesus says that Jesus and those with him, he says we, who's the we? Jesus says that he and those with him speak of what they know and what they have seen. But Nicodemus does not receive their testimony. In other words, Nicodemus does not grasp what Jesus is saying because he does not believe. That's how he turns that we on their head. Nicodemus had said, we think that you must be a teacher of God. Jesus said, we speak of what we have seen and what we know. You don't understand. They don't understand because they don't believe. He does not believe that it is the Son of God. He does not believe that it is the Messiah. He does not believe that it is the eternal King who is standing in front of him. See, here's the problem. When we imagine that the person who's talking to us is our equal We think that what's being said can only be true if we understand it. This is why I love teaching really little kids. My favorite Sunday school class is like, if they're out of control, it's true. But I love teaching two and three-year-olds, four, five, and six-year-olds. I love those little kids up all the way up to probably third grade. Because anything you say has got to be true, and they believe it. They don't, they're not arguing with you. Nobody's saying, no, that's not true. Unless their brother their, told them something else. That's the only way. But my brother says, no. Unless that's happened, you don't, you don't get that. Parents can teach their children, and their children listen. They get a little older, and nothing's true. It doesn't matter how many more decades you've lived than them. It doesn't matter how much more education you have than them. It doesn't matter how much more experience that you have than them. It can't be true because their friend told them on the bus something completely different. Or they read it on the web someplace. Somebody said something on Facebook. If Nicodemus had thought that it was the eternal son of God standing in front of him, would he have questioned anything Jesus said? No. He might not have understood it, but he wouldn't have questioned it. You see, we believe what Jesus says because it's Jesus who said it. It doesn't matter if we understand it or not. We don't have to understand it for it to be true. If he said it, it is true. It's why in Hebrews we're told that we believe by faith that God created the heavens and the earth. Because God says it. We weren't there. Nobody was. He was. And so we believe by faith what he has declared. And so that is the the problem for Nicodemus. And so for Jesus, the we with which he joins himself are those who know far more than the we of Nicodemus' group. Jesus' we have true understanding of the word of God. They see Jesus and they know that they are seeing Jesus. God. They hear Jesus and they know that they are hearing God. The you are those who do not receive God's word in faith. And the, in the larger context of this gospel, we have to consider which divide of this, we're, which side of this divide we're on. The gospel writer has placed the confessions of the disciples on the one side and those who challenge Jesus' authority 
or who do not believe that he is the Son of God on the other. You see, this includes a wide range over here. It includes those who question, what authority do you have to do this? All the way up through those who believe that he's a teacher sent from God because no one except those sent from God could do the things that he does. This group over here, to whom Jesus does not entrust himself because he knows what's in the heart of man, it's a wide range, but it includes everybody from those who are outright opposed all the way up to those who say that they believe but don't have the sort of faith that we call saving faith. They might even have what we call historic faith. You know who else has historic faith? The demons. They have stood in the presence of God. And yet they do not have... So they believe. And what what does James tell us? They believe in shudder. And that's the kind of faith these guys may have over here, but it's not saving faith. Over here is a different kind of faith that recognizes that Jesus is God. He is the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Messiah, the eternal King of Israel. Nothing less. The same thing that those disciples believed about Jesus before his first miracle is continues to be confessed and believed by the church of Jesus Christ 2,000 years later. While out of ignorance of what is in a person's heart, we may want to give people a benefit of the doubt and hope that that loved one has faith. Jesus, who knows the heart, does not. On the one side are those who believe what the disciples believe. On the other side is everyone else, whether they are those who challenge his authority or those who think that he may be from God but don't believe he is God. While it is most probable that Nicodemus later came to saving faith, and I've already said that, here, Jesus' words concerning being born again are beyond his understanding. Not because they're difficult, not because they're esoteric. In fact, Jesus says that he's been talking about earthly things. And if you don't understand earthly things, how are you going to understand it when I tell you about heavenly things? Being born is an earthly thing. No one is born in heaven. If Nicodemus couldn't understand something as earthly as the need to be washed clean of his sins and given a new life, which, by the way, the Passover represents the very thing that they're celebrating right now. Think about it. If you were the first, what happened to the firstborn of Egypt on the night of the Passover? They all died, right? They all died. So if you were an Israelite who by faith had put blood on the lintel of your house and stayed inside to eat the Passover lamb, when you emerged from that house the next day, into the light of that day, hearing and knowing of the weeping of the Egyptians around you, it would be like new life. In fact, do you remember what God told Israel concerning the month of the Passover? This shall be the first month of the first year for you. The Passover represented new life. Everything about Israel and the law and the prophets spoke about its need. And so this should have been something clearly understood. 
But if he doesn't understand these things, then there's no possibility for him understanding heavenly things. The point of Jesus' next words is that he is the only one able to speak authoritatively about heaven because he has actually been there and come from there. He is the most able to describe heavenly things, therefore, in earthly language. And that is what he has been doing. And that is what he is going to do next as he refers back to Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. We read that passage a little earlier, and I noted things about it and Israel's sin. This is one of the many incidents that took place as Israel traveled through the wilderness on its way from Egypt to the promised land. As Israel took the path that passed uh, south of the land of Edom, the people became impatient, began to grumble because they had no food or water. They were bored with the manna that God had been miraculously providing to them. And as punishment, God sent the fiery serpents. They confessed their sin in verse 7 of chapter 21 of Numbers. And they asked Moses to pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents. And in response, Moses was instructed to make the bronze serpent that he put up on a pole. The serpent was a symbol of the consequences of their sin. Their sin brought death by way of the serpent's bite. But those who looked in faith to the symbol of God's saving work to remove their punishment would live. And I say by faith because only those who believe that God would heal them from that bite would look to that serpent. Numbers 21 describes an incident that Nicodemus should be familiar with. Therefore, Jesus uses it to tell Nicodemus about the saving work that God will do through Jesus himself. Just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. The lives of the Israelites who looked on the serpent were spared that day, but only to die on another. Jesus, on the other hand, promises eternal life to those who look to him in faith for the salvation from their sin. Sin brings death. Our disobedience to God, command, God's commands, and our failure to do what his commands, he commands our grumbling against his providences, our selfish use of his blessings, our distrust and lack of trust in him are sin. The punishment of our sin is death. In answer to our need for salvation and deliverance, God lifted Jesus on the cross. As the perfect sinless sacrifice, he lived the obedient righteous life that God demands of us. And on the cross, he paid the penalty and suffered the death that we deserved. Like the serpent, which was the consequence of Israel's sin, Jesus' death on the cross is the consequence of our sin. In repentance and faith, look to Jesus, the one who has taken your place. Love, verses 16 through 21. God loved Israel enough to provide a symbol of the way for their salvation from the consequences of their sin on the border of Edom as a shadow of what he would do in Jesus. Far, far greater, God has loved the world enough to provide a way of salvation from the consequence of all of his people's sins by giving his son the true substitute so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
Jesus says that unlike the fiery serpents, he wasn't sent to condemn the world. There was no need for that. There is no need for that because everyone who doesn't believe in him is condemned already. We're like those upon whom the judge has already pronounced the sentence, but we just haven't entered prison yet. That's what it is. That's where we're already at because we're already guilty if we don't believe. This doesn't mean that they've already been judged. It does mean that all mankind is already under the condemnation of God because they have not put their faith in Jesus, the Son of God, who came into the world to save them. The Son of God has come into the world to attract mankind to the light. Mankind needs to be saved because of their because their works are evil and they have loved darkness and hated the light. By God's grace, some will come to the light and be saved. And just as the works of those who love the darkness will be evidenced by their unbelief, so the works of those who come to the light will be evidenced, will evidence the work of God in their lives. Had these last verses been written by the inspired apostle many, many decades after Nicodemus's meeting with Jesus, they would be no less inspired. But the fact that they that these verses are part of what Jesus said at this time in his public ministry means that Jesus knows who he is and why he is here from the very beginning. And it means that he is declaring his own role in our salvation. For a second, we know that Jesus is talking about himself in the third person for a reason, because of this time in Revelation history. And he's got more than two and a half years of ministry ahead of him before the cross. But I want us to understand it from the first person. It's as if Jesus is saying, I will be lifted up. It's as if Jesus is saying, God so loved the world that he sent me. No, better than that. It's as if Jesus is saying, I have loved you so much that I have come into the world for your sins. It's as if he is saying, I have come into the world so that whoever believes in me should not perish, but have eternal life. This is more than a warning from the Apostle John. This is more than Pastor Philip or myself could ever say to you. This is Jesus himself calling you to repent of your sins and to believe in him for your salvation, for eternal life. This is Jesus calling you to believe. This is Jesus telling you how great his love for you in this world is. Is This is Jesus telling you that he came to pay the penalty for your sin and die for you. If you believe in him. This is Jesus calling you to look for, to him for salvation so that you will have eternal life. This is Jesus saying that if you believe that he is the son of God and came to the, and come to the light, then you will see the work of God in your life. Jesus, the son of God the only Savior, the eternal King, is calling on you to believe in Him so that you will be forgiven from your sin. Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal King, 
the Savior, is calling you to believe in Him so that you will have eternal life. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise You for Your Word. We thank You most of all for Jesus. Our God, our King, our Savior. Father, there are many loved ones who tell us that they believe in God. But we wonder about the impact of that on their lives. Therefore, most of all, we worry about what that means in their hearts. We pray that by your grace, you would raise them from the dead. Parents, aunts and uncles, grandparents, our children, our neighbors, our co-workers. We pray, Father, by your grace you would work in them and you would raise them from the dead. We pray that you would use us to talk to them about Christ, to point them to Christ in so far as possible, in humble and loving ways. But we know, Father, that just as Paul declared that he sowed and that Apollos watered, but that it is only God who gives the increase, and therefore the only one that matters is God who gives the increase. We know, Father, that our words, our lives, only go so far. We pray that you would use us to your glory that others would see Christ in us, that others would hear Christ from us. But most of all, Father, we pray for the powerful work of your Holy Spirit to give them new life. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.